Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. How are we doing? It's good to see you. If we have not met before, my name is Timmy, and I'm on staff here at Mercy Hill. Um, and whenever I was 13, or I think 14 years old, for Christmas, my parents got me a compound bow. And my dad gave me one rule, and that rule was always shoot towards the woods, okay? It's a great rule. It's like shooting 101 if you shoot guns or anything. Like, you always know what your backdrop is, okay? It's, it's smart. Dads are great. Well, I started practicing with this bow, and I started getting pretty decent with it. And I would shoot around 15, 20, 25, like 30 yards was kind of the furthest. And then I decided one day, I want to see how far I can still shoot my target at. And so I pulled my target to the side of my house so where I could use both my front yard and my backyard. We lived on an acre, so I wanted to get like a bunch of distance here, all right? And I walked 80 yards away from my target. Now, here's the problem. The target was positioned to where I would be shooting, not towards the woods, but towards the street, okay? Not very smart, but I just figured, well, I've never missed a target. I'm probably not going to miss it, even though this, I was an idiot. This was like three times further than I'd ever shot before. And so I pull back my bow, and I'm aiming, and I shoot, and I miss the target. And I thought it would just stick into the ground. But if you've shot bows before, you know that's not the case. Typically when you're shooting at like level and over a distance like this, now it hits the ground and then it bounces up. And now I have an arrow moving like 300 feet per second flying towards the street, okay? Thankfully, no cars were coming by at this moment. We kind of lived out in the middle of nowhere. But unthankfully, there is a house right across the street towards where my arrow is now flying. And these neighbors just moved into that house like a month prior. I've never met them before. And thankfully, it didn't hit their house, but it smokes their fence. And so I just hear, pow, like, I mean, two seconds later. It took forever for the arrow to get there. But now I have this arrow sticking in their fence. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, I'm never going to be able to shoot this thing again. So I put my my bow down, and I, like, go across the street, and I kind of sneak into their yard. And sure enough, there's, like, a three-foot-long arrow sticking out of their fence, like, head height. And anyways, I pull it out and end up breaking my arrow in the process. Had to come back with pliers to get it. But here's the point, guys. I had one rule, okay? One rule. When it comes to the Bible, there are a lot of commands that Jesus has given us, okay? And the primary reason we are to obey those commands is to glorify God. I don't know if you were here last week, but one of the things Jesse brought up was the the Westminster Catechism. And the very first question in it is, what is man's chief end? Like, what is our purpose as humans? And that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So every command in scripture really is given to us to, for us to be able to glorify him and to lead to our joy. That's why we are to obey God. But this, this morning, I want us to ask, not why should we obey God's word, but I want us to ask the question, how? Right, how are we to obey these commands. Because if you look at Jesus's first words in this text in verse 15, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And if you and I are being honest, we go, man, we are broken, sinful, very messy human beings who are very quick to walk away from our heavenly father. Like how in the world are we to keep and obey these commands? All right, well, that's the question our text is going to be answering this morning. And within our passage, guys, I believe there are four words that we need to embrace if we are to obey the commands that Jesus has given us. And so um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 14. That's where we are. 
And if you don't have one, there should be a blue one underneath your, your chair, or maybe your neighbor's chair, you go ahead and grab that. And um, I would just encourage you, open up to John 14 and just keep that on your lap because we're just going to be walking through this text nice and slowly this morning. Uh, but the first thing that we need to embrace in order to obey the commands that Jesus has given us is the word power. Okay, we need to embrace power and specifically the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, now I want you to remember the context of where we are when this conversation is taking place. All right, a few weeks ago, we started John 13, which this section of scripture that we're in from John 13, really, I believe, to 16, is known as the upper room discourse. Okay, and this conversation that is being had is not a conversation that's happening in, in public. It's not a, a public debate. This is a very intimate conversation between Jesus and his disciples as they're alone in this room and he's comforting them. See, Jesus knows that tomorrow he's going to be crucified. And he knows that his death is going to shake the very foundations of his disciples' faith. And so he knows what lies ahead. And in this moment, he is comforting them lovingly and tenderly. And there's just this beautiful dialogue that happens in chapters 13 and 14. Like, I'm not sure if your Bible is one of those that has Jesus's letters in, in red, but if it does, just, just look at it really quick with me at chapters 13 and 14. Just notice all the red and then the black and then the red as, as Jesus is just having this beautiful dialogue as he talks with Peter and Thomas and Philip and Judas, right? Not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple named Judas. But as you read through their conversation with Jesus, it just seems like his disciples are a bit confused. Like they're a little bit lost. But Jesus is promising them that he is not going to leave them as orphans. And in verses 16 and 17, Jesus kind of flips over his, his ace of spades. And he says, I am going to send you another helper. Now notice Jesus says another, all right? Like he says he's going to send them another helper. And the reason he says another is because Jesus is our helper. The Greek word used here for helper is the word paraclete. And it can be translated counselor or advocate or helper. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper, another paraclete. And so the question we need to ask is, who is this other helper? The answer in verse 26, we learn, is that he is the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure if you've picked up on this, but there can be a lot of confusion when it comes to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And one of my goals this morning is I just want to bring a lot of clarity to who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is. Like, I hope to bring clarity to who he is and, and what he does, because I've been shaped really over my life by many theologians like uh, Wayne Grudem and Martin Lloyd-Jones and R.C. Sproul and D.A. Carson and many others who have so shaped my theology and helped me to understand who the Holy Spirit is. And it's been so helpful really in my life and with my theology. But unfortunately, I think there is so much mystery and confusion about the Holy Spirit that people just tend to avoid him. Or maybe they've had a negative experience with their past in their church. 
to where they, it just tends to them wanting nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem with that thinking. Right? Either one of those ditches. God's word says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Right? That is a command for us Christians. So when we neglect or we quench the Holy Spirit, and we go, I want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, we're making a big problem. We're actually being disobedient to what God's word commands. John 14 through 16 is the longest text in scripture that we have that explains who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And so I want to lay a foundation for us this morning about who he is and what he does. And so I want to start by talking about who he is not, okay? The Holy Spirit is not the wind that is blowing in the air. He is not a ghost like you see in Harry Potter, all right? He's not a force like you see in Star Wars. And let's make sure we get our pronouns right. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. And I'm going to give us three statements that are always true about the Holy Spirit. And here are the three statements. First, the Holy Spirit is a person. Second, the Holy Spirit is God. And third, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells with you and lives in you. All right, now let's talk about each one of those one by one. First, the Holy Spirit is a person. All right, he's not some genie in a bottle, all right, that we go to and we make transactions with. All right, you and I don't live our lives and demand that the Holy Spirit do something for us whenever we want him to. He's not a force or genie that we manipulate. He is a person that we commune with, that we walk with, that we are led by. He's a person. And secondly, I want to be very clear on this one. The Holy Spirit is God. He is almighty God. We worship a God who is three persons in one essence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is really hard for us to understand with our puny-sized brains, but that's okay. God is so much bigger and greater than us. We can take comfort in that. We will never fully understand God this side of heaven. We won't, but that's okay. We're the creation. He's the creator. Take confidence in that. Now, each person has unique roles within the Trinity. What I mean for that is that the Father did not die on the cross for our sins. The Son did, right? And the Spirit does not send the Father. The Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son. All right, we see that in verse 26. So there are three persons within the Godhead. Now, typically, most Christians refer to the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. But that does not mean that he is less than God. And to believe that would be a massive mistake that we'd be making in our theology. And so you go, all right, Tim, like, where do we see this in Scripture? Let me turn with you to one passage in Acts chapter 5. It'll be on the screen behind me, so you don't even need to turn there. Uh, in fact, we just looked at this, college students, at Saul Company two weeks ago, and so we should be really familiar with this. Um, but this is Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit into his disciples, and verse 1 says this. It's right at the beginning of the early church. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, listen to this. To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. See, in the same breath that Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, he tells him that you have lied to God. He equates the Spirit with Almighty God. The Holy Spirit is God. We worship one God, and he is three in one. And I'm not sure if you uh, went to a church like me growing up where you grew up singing the, the doxology. Uh, every once in a while we break that out here at Mercy Hill. That's praise God from whom, all, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. The very last line of that says, praise the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We praise all three because all three are God, and they all deserve worship, honor, and praise, and glory, and adoration. In fact, today, whenever we see some baptisms in like 30 minutes from now, um, we will baptize each person in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commands us to do that in Matthew 28. And so lastly, look, at, look with me at the, at the end of verse 17. It says, he, that's the Holy Spirit, dwells with you and will be in you. And right, here's our third point. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells with you and is in you. Again, at the, at the beginning of, of chapter 14, we talked about how Jesus was preparing a place for us. But here Jesus is talking about preparing a place in us. That his Holy Spirit would indwell us and be with us and give us the power to fight sin and to walk in obedience to our King. And this is extremely important for us to understand. Like it has so many implications I'm just going to give us one. One implication of this is that our prayer life should be impacted by this. I believe our prayer life should be Trinitarian in nature. Right? What I mean by that is that we should be aware of all three persons of the Trinity when we pray. So for me personally, most of my prayers are directed towards the Heavenly Father. It's typically what we see in Scripture when people pray. They typically pray to the Father. So most of my prayers are directed to Him. But I also want to be aware of the Son and, and aware of the Holy Spirit's work as I'm praying. For example, if I get, the, get into a gospel conversation and I'm sharing with a non-Christian, I might spend some time praying and thanking God for this opportunity to share the good news of what Jesus has done for this person. And then I might spend some time praying that the Holy Spirit would open up their eyes to see that they're broken and that Jesus is the answer and that they would trust in Jesus because that's the Spirit's work. The Spirit unveils our eyes to see who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that. Or maybe this morning, even before I prayed, I was praying, Father, I pray that you would be glorified as I handle your word this morning. Spirit, would you guide my words? Help them to edify our church and our people this morning. Or perhaps you enter into a difficult conversation and you pray, Lord, would you guide my words? Would you give me wisdom and discernment? Spirit, show me what it is that I need to say. As if our Bibles refer to the Holy Spirit as the capital H helper. I think it's appropriate that we call on him for help. This should impact our prayer life. He is with us. He is in us. And we are called to lean into him and to be led by him and aware and sensitive to who he is and his presence. Right? And this reality of the Holy Spirit in us, Christian, should be so comforting. 
This is what Jesus was doing here. He is comforting his disciples and he's telling them he is going to send his spirit. So if we are to obey Christ's commands, we are to embrace the power of the power by his spirit. All right, that's our first one. Here's the second thing we need to embrace. We need to embrace relationship. Okay, so go back with me in our text and look at verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Okay, there's a verse in here that we just read that I think could be really easy for you and I just to kind of like pass over and overlook. And so look with me at the back half of verse 20 and just the powerful theology that's just packed in this verse. Jesus says, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. All right, what does that mean? All right, this is what many theologians call union with Christ. And we are actually in Christ and he is in us and we are in him and there are many implications that come with the reality that we have identified with Jesus and he now identifies with us. But let me just give you one here. All right, if we are in Christ, that means your faith is in him, you have trusted in him, you've believed the good news message of the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. If we are in Christ, it means that we are in a relationship with the one who loves us. All right, so whenever I married Lindsay uh, seven years ago, we identify with one another at the altar and we entered into a covenant relationship between, uh, with one another before God. Now, if you've been around us, right, our relationship, it is not perfect, okay? But it is one that is built on love, and that love looks like something. So whenever we first got married, one of the things I was really into was playing soccer. I grew up playing soccer my whole life. I'm a big hobbyist, by the way, if you don't know me. Like, I love getting into new hobbies. But soccer was definitely the one that I've played the most and was the best at. And Lindsay, on the other hand, she, she's very athletic. But the whole, like, foot-eye coordination thing is not really there for her. She did not grow up playing soccer. But whenever we got married she began to take more interest in soccer because of me. So that looked like her starting to come to some of my games. And then she began to, to ask me questions like, hey, what is, what is offsides mean? How does that work? And so I got to explain to her how that worked. And, and then even over the years, guys, there's been some times where Lindsay's come out and she's ball with us. Like she's played a little pickup with us. Like the last time we played was at, at UC at, at uh, Sheekley Field. And she was in her second trimester uh, pregnant with Sailor. <laughs> some of you were there. And, uh, you know, Lindsay, she's got like one speed only, and that's like PE hero, okay? And so she was going off. She did great. She actually got hurt that day, and then our midwives were like, hey, no more soccer. And so we haven't played since. But anyways, what is my point? Lindsay before me could care less about soccer. She could care less about it. But she loves me and has served me over the years and has gone out of her way with a joy-filled heart to play or watch a game that she had really little interest in before she met me. Because what's true is that when we are in genuine relationships that leads to genuine joy-filled action, love looks like something. The same is true with Jesus. Right? It doesn't get any more black and white with this. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If you are in Christ, you are in relationship with him, which means you love him. 
Only Christians actually love Jesus. And that love looks like something. And it looks like obedience to his word. You can't love Jesus and not love his word. Right? Obedience is not a prerequisite to salvation. But it is an overflow of our love for the one who first loved us. For the one who brought us into a relationship with himself. We see this all over scripture. That true love manifests itself in obedience to Jesus. So how do we obey God's word? We embrace power. We embrace relationship. And third, we embrace scripture. Look at verse 25 with me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Guys, this is beautiful. The Holy Spirit whom Jesus has sent is going to help us learn and be reminded of Scripture. And I love this because Jesus isn't walking away from his disciples here saying, all right, good luck, figure it out. Like, I'm going to go away and die, and I'm going to send it to heaven, and you'll be on your own. Good luck, you got this. No, he's sending his spirit, the helper, to remind them of what is true. He's sending them literally, verse 17, the spirit of truth. And I just want to take a second because I think it's worth noting that the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures, guys, they're not at odds with one another. They're not enemies. I think often people can go, well, you know, I'm a Bible person, right? And other people, well, I'm a Holy Spirit person, right? I want to be led. As if the two are at odds with one another. But they're not. You can't pit those two against one another. They are two sides of the same coin. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. Every single word in Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means practically for us, the Holy Spirit is never going to lead you to do something that the Bible contradicts or that would contradict the Bible. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me to do X, Y, and Z, but that thing contradicts what the Word of God says, then you can tell them very confidently, hey, that's not the Holy Spirit. It won't do that. He won't do that. So Jesus is promising his disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach them and remind them. All right, so what did this look like for his disciples? All right, I'm not talking about us. Like, what did it look like for his disciples in the room who would become apostles? I think very simply and very practically, the Holy Spirit helped some of these disciples to actually write some of the scriptures that we have today. Right, the very scripture that we are reading this morning was written by one of these men in this room that Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, would send his spirit to, John. So after Jesus ascended into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit, he reminded these men of what is true, which should give you and I great confidence that though our Bibles were written by broken, sinful, fallible men, the Holy Spirit inspired every single word. And so every single word of our Bibles are accurate and true. We can stand on that and take great confidence in that. So that was them, all right? But what about us? All right, none of us here are apostles. So none of us here are going to be writing any Holy Scripture. Please don't try to write Holy Scripture. 
What does this mean for us? I think, I, I think the first is the Holy Spirit helps to illuminate the scripture for us. Now, that's a big word for me. Okay, illuminate, three syllables. Very fancy and mystical word. Here's what it means. It really means that the Holy Spirit helps us to read and understand the Bible correctly. Which me, being from Louisiana, I'm very thankful for this gift. I need it. All right. I don't get that. Okay. But seriously, this is a gift that is given to all Christians. That all of a sudden, right, the Bible just starts to make sense. Which you can really see this with a person who's grown up around Christianity, right? They, they, they grew up really familiar with the word of God. And then, they, and then they actually weren't a Christian, but then they became a Christian. It's like, oh my gosh, the whole Bible starts to make sense. It all points to Jesus. Kevin Marks is, a, is a, uh, one of our leaders. He gave me permission to share this, but he became a Christian his senior year of high school, right before he came to UC. And he grew up around a lot of Christian things. He grew up in a school that believed the Bible was God's word. He was familiar with a lot of the stories in the Bible. He had heard that Jesus died on the cross for him and rose from the grave, but none of that ever made sense until he was reading Romans one day and the spirit opened his eyes to see and he trusted in Jesus and God saved him in that moment, his senior high school. And since then, it was like, oh my goodness, everything that I've known and heard about growing up now makes sense. Right, the law now makes sense. The Old Testament now makes sense. Like Jesus is the greater Moses and all these things and the greater David, it all points to Jesus. And maybe you've had a story like that where it's like, oh, the Bible just starts to make sense now. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. That isn't you because you're smarter than somebody else. No, well, you were dead in your sins and so was I. The Holy Spirit is the life giver and the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates our hearts to see what the word of God is actually saying, all right? We don't have full understanding of everything in scripture. Anybody who tells you that he understands everything about the Bible is lying to you. No, they don't, all right? But it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the word of God for us. Now, this doesn't mean, all right, that when you wake up tomorrow and you open up your Bible and you start reading that, like, you're gonna see the heavens open, you're gonna get goosebumps, right? And every time you read the Bible, like, that's not what, this is saying, that's not the normative pattern, but what this does mean is I believe this is a call for you and I to be in God's word daily. Reading and trying to understand God and his word. And the Holy Spirit is promised to help you and I with that. All right, another thing that I believe this is a call for is for us to remain in Christian community. All right, because when Kevin became a Christian, the same Holy Spirit that is in me is now in Kevin. And that Holy Spirit is going to show Kevin things in God's word that he hasn't showed me. And Kevin can encourage me with those things. So we need one another. So if you're not picking up on this yet, it is pretty impossible to obey the commands of Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I, we can't do it on our own. We need to partner with the Spirit. And I believe this is one of the reasons why Jesus says in John 16, that it is better for me to leave and send my Holy Spirit. It is that important that the Holy Spirit, I don't know if you think like this, because I have a hard time believing this, but it's true. The Holy Spirit in me is better than Jesus right next to me. That's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit in you, it is better that he would leave and ascend and go to heaven and send the Holy Spirit to dwell inside you and give you power to walk in obedience to him and live a life that honors him than for Jesus to just say beside you. It's that important. 
So how do we obey God's commands? We embrace power, we embrace relationship, we embrace scripture. And lastly, guys, we need to embrace peace. The peace that Jesus offers. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Again, remember the context of this, right? Jesus is about to leave. He's about to die and be crucified the next day. He's comforting his disciples and he's saying to them, I am going to give you peace. How do you think that peace is going to be provided? The Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on and so on. But this peace that Jesus is talking about is, is very different than what our world or our culture says or has to offer when it comes to peace. Our world's idea of peace is like temporary happiness or just an absence of like conflicts and turmoil. But the type of peace that Jesus is promising is one that supersedes all circumstances. It's the kind of peace that remains even in the midst of turmoil and life. And maybe you've felt that before, Christian. Jesus is telling his disciples, do not be afraid, but rather dive headfirst into my peace. Now, how is it that we can have peace? Let me put it this way. Why is it, because Jesus ends here by saying, do not be afraid. Like, why is it that we should not be fearful? Look back with me at verse 30. And Jesus shows us why we can have peace. He says, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world, Satan, is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus here is reminding his disciples that we are at war. And their enemy is real. And his name is Satan. And in just a few hours from this very moment, this very conversation that Jesus is having, Satan is going to take his best shot at defeating the Son of God. John 13, 27 tells us that Satan entered Jesus. And then hours later, that Jesus went, Judas, I'm sorry, Satan enters Judas, not Jesus. Satan never entered Jesus. Satan entered Judas. And then Judas, hours later from this moment, would go on to betray Jesus as he would, as he would hand him over to the religious authorities who wanted to put an end to Jesus in his ministry. And many of us are familiar with this story, right? He was put before the San, Sanhedrin. He went through multiple false trials. He was beaten He was mocked. He was spit on. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and he was crucified on a cross. And it was very likely, guys, in that moment that Satan thought that he won. Jesus was killed. The son of God was dead. And likely for the next few days, the disciples probably felt like they just lost. I mean, they don't start sharing any good news after Jesus dies. They kind of go away and they hide with themselves. They're afraid. Like the king, they've not, put yourself in their shoes. They've just followed this guy who they thought was the Messiah, who they believed was the son of God for three and a half years. And now he's dead in a tomb. They're thinking we've lost. But what is it that Jesus tells his disciples in verse 30? The devil has no claim on me. He has zero power over Jesus, which means that as the devil was 
busy celebrating what he thought was a victory, Jesus was busy preparing a resurrection. The lion of Judah was about to come roaring out of the grave and that grave would have no claim on him. And Jesus defeated death, which means he defeated Satan. The victory has been won, it is finished. So what does that mean for us Christians? What does that mean for you and I now as believers in Jesus, those in Christ? Guys, it means everything. We are in Christ, so everything that belongs to him now belongs to us. And we've been sealed with his Holy Spirit, which means now that Jesus has victory over sin and death, so do we share in victory over sin and death. When God looks at you, he no longer sees you as an enemy. He sees you as a holy, blameless son or daughter and who he's pleased with because of Jesus' work on your behalf, because Jesus defeated sin and shame. His righteousness is now accredited to you and I. That's why we shouldn't fear. Because the devil, our greatest enemy in life, has been defeated by our king. Guys, the war is over. And we identify with that king. And that's why we have peace. The king has sealed his victory and brought you and I into his family. Here is what's true. At one time, every single one of us stood condemned and guilty before God because of our sin against him. That was true of all of us from birth, and it might even be true of you now. And listen to me, there is no amount of good things that you can do or going to church or memorizing God's word or trying to obey him to where you could ever earn right standing with God. Your greatest need in life is you need peace with God. But because of our sin against him, we stand condemned under his wrath. The only hope that we have is that Jesus paid it all on the cross, and he did. And he proved it by raising from the grave. You can have peace with God right now. Your greatest need in life met through believing in Jesus and trusting in his work. Through recognizing that you're broken and you can't contribute anything to make God love you, but Jesus has already done it. Because that is the most beautiful thing you could ever come to understand. I pray the Spirit shows it to you if he hasn't yet. Only he can. Here's what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, all right, that's how we're justified, not by works, by faith, we have peace with God, all right? That's not just the peace of God on our life. No, that is peace with God, that you're no longer an enemy of God. The moment you have faith in Jesus, you're justified, you're brought into his family, and now you and God are at peace. Eternal peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's come full circle, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Translation, Christian, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And that's incredible news. Which means as we look at obeying the commands that Jesus has given us, yes, it feels impossible because it is. But the one who calls us to the impossible task has given us his spirit, which empowers us to be able to walk in new life. Apart from the spirit, guys, we cannot obey the commands that God has given us in his word. But with the Spirit, we can partner him and begin to walk in obedience to Jesus. All right, there's still going to be sin in your life. 
but keep clinging to the gospel that Jesus paid for it. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, and keep fanning the flame of the spirit that is in your heart, Christian. Don't quench him. Because our king, Jesus, has claimed the victory, and we are in him. We share in it. That is true of you. Let's pray, and then we'll celebrate some baptisms. Father, thank you for your word that is so powerful and so comforting to my heart this morning. God, I know that there's no difference between me and anybody else in this room. I'm just a broken, messy sinner who's in need of your grace. Thank you, Lord, for sending men and women into my life who first shared the good news with me. It has so changed my life. What a privilege that you want to use us to do the same. We want to be obedient to your commands. We want to reflect on our lives personally and ask, God, where are we not? Where are we not being obedient to the Spirit's leading? Where are we not being obedient to your word? Help us to repent of that and turn and remember the gospel that Jesus has paid for it and to begin to walk in obedience to you. Father, I pray that Mercy Hill would be marked as a church filled with men and women and children who are so in love with you, Jesus, that it just looks so different to the world. Now, when people ask, what is it that you have? We would be so quick to point to Jesus and what he's done to save us. Lord, we thank you just for the peace that we have with you, Father the hope that we have, the life that we have, the spirit that is in us, the truth that nothing can ever separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, comfort us as we start our weeks, as we go into our workplaces. Help us to be bold with the message that you've given us. Help us to be okay with getting uncomfortable, to have loving, hard conversations with those around us, Jesus, because you became uncomfortable so that we could have life. You are our motivation, nothing else. We don't try to obey you so that you will love us more. Lord, it's because you love us so much in Christ that we want to walk in obedience to you. We're so privileged in Jesus. We love you, God. We praise you. Amen.